Foxes and Vowel is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey, I'm Aaron. Welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. My guest today is Melissa Florer Bixler. Melissa is a Mennonite pastor and the author of two books, The Excellent Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament, and one that's soon to be released called How to Have an Enemy. That title alone is enough to make me want to know more. As usual, we cover a lot of ground, so stick around afterwards for some things I'm taking away from our time. And until then, here's my conversation with Melissa Florer Bixler. All right, uh, Reverend Melissa Florer Bixler, welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thanks, Aaron. It's so good to be with you. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, one of the wonderful things about this technology is the chance to get to meet people uh, across a continent. <laughs> so I'm glad to be together. Um, yeah, well, let's get right into it. I, I'm always interested in this podcast and talking about ideas of vocation, about uh, calling and how we kind of discern what we're meant to do. Um, and I'm especially interested in talking with people who who seem to do a bunch of different things that all make up a kind of coherent vocation. And, and I don't know you very well, uh, but that seems to apply to you. Uh, you know, maybe it applies to everyone in some way, but uh, I know you as a writer, um, but your everyday job, you're, you're sitting in your office as, as a pastor today. And so maybe kind of by way of introduction, I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of how you got to this point, uh, a little bit about your own journey and about how these two things fit together, uh, pastoring and writing. Yeah, sure. Happy to talk a little bit about that. Um, so I, you know, part of my background is, story is that I actually grew up in the Episcopal church. And so I had a very different sort of experience of what it meant to be a clergy person uh, from my chosen tradition, which is the Mennonite church, Mennonite church, USA. Uh, so I, you know, I grew up with, you know, a, there's a priest up front who, wears distinctive clothes that separate him. All my, all my priests growing up were men um, and separate him from, from the congregation. Uh, this, the sense that there is um, something um, that an ontological change that comes over a priest when they're ordained. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um only, only the priests can um, preside over communion. So it's a, this real, real separation. And so I think there was something about that. I just couldn't imagine myself in that role. I, I mean, part of this is the the gender dynamics of this. You know, we, you can't be what you can't see. Um, and so it's hard, harder for women who who have never seen a woman in a in a in a priestly role to imagine themselves. But I do think there was something else about this idea of. Um, distinctiveness instead of partness that that just didn't quite make sense to me within my life even though I was like a super churchy kid like I you know like looking back 
all the evidence was there that this is where I was going to end up. Like, you know, the great Thanksgiving with my stuffed animal congregation. (laughs) And, you know, it was very, it's very clear that I was trending in this direction, but I could Mm -hmm. never have really sort of embraced that for myself. And so for me, it really was a transition into a, a congregation that had um, that had a, that had a flat polity that that saw um, sort of sort of I think in some ways inverted that um, idea of of one person set apart to um, the role of the pastor is is actually to um, foster in each person a priestliness mm-hmm. <laughs> like to how does this one this that your job among as a priest among priests is to help people understand their priestliness and to take hold of it in whatever way um that uh they are gifted and called to that which is really different um and i was like oh yeah i'm totally down with that that's that makes sense i'm good i'm good with that <laughs> with that kind of way of of being called into ministry um, that's uh that's great and so you you do that work as a pastor um and how how does how does writing relate to that how do how is that part of what you do um you know i think once you begin to see um, see the, the priestly role as something that is about, um, calling out other people's vocations. It also sort of develops that within yourself, right? It's, um, you know, you begin to think like, oh, how else am I, have I restricted the idea of what a pastor is to this sort of sphere of things? When I, when, I expect in everyone else there to be the sort of, um, you know, this multiple, this, these multiple gifts and calls and sort of activism that intersects with one another. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't I expect God to act in that way in my own life? Um, and then I think to, uh, to that also then again, and sort of, sort of in that sense of flipping the, the paradigm to have a, to have a congregation, to have your people call you into these other ways of ministering into the community and to affirm, wow, actually, you know, this, this writing gift is, is, has been good for us and is good for the world. It's good for the church. Um, And so we bless you to see um, this is an extension of your ministry to us rather than just sort of like, I got the, I have this side gig that I do. So I, I certainly think of writing as part of my pastoral ministry. Um, yeah. That's so good. Um, yeah. My, my limited experience of uh, Mennonite churches, there, there tends to be a bigger uh, kind of drive towards teaching as, as you know, the pastor is teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, does that play out? Does that, does that sound right to you? Pastor is teacher. I I think in in one sense that's true, um, but more because of the professionalization that's happened in the Mennonite Church. You know, we used to be far, mostly farmers. <laughs> we we drew lots to see who. You know, we still have older members of our congregation who their parents were called or fathers mostly um, were called by lot 
into being the pastor of the church. Um, So there really has been a shift in the past generation of, of it's very, it's standard now for Mennonite pastors to go to seminary and and to end up with an MDiv. Um, So I think we are sensing a shift in a little bit in that way. And so um, maybe more in this generation than the past. Okay. Fair enough. Now chosen by a lot. I wonder if that's uh, good luck or bad luck. I don't know. Uh, for some people, it was very bad luck. <laughs> I can say, <laughs> I, I would even, I've heard a few people even say this, that it really ruined their father's life. So oh, no. not, not totally a fan of that system. Um, mm. but it's, that's what they used to do. Well, yeah. Ministry is a good gig if you're called to it. That's right. Well, otherwise, uh, not as much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, I, I started uh, following you because I read your, your beautiful book, uh, Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament, which was uh, wonderful. And listeners should go out and get that today. Uh, but uh, I want to talk about your new book with, that's coming out, which is uh, has the excellent title of How to Have an Enemy. Uh, which is, uh, I just think that's brilliant. And uh, you're not messing around in this book. <laughs> um, you know, I sat on my couch in the sunshine yesterday and read the whole thing, virtual cover to virtual cover, uh, which was a real a real gift to me. And I, I highlighted a lot of stuff, uh, some of which because uh, you have a great way with words and, and I, something delighted me, some of it just because I was convicted. And uh, I got to go back and <laughs> look at that again and um, and think more deeply about some of the things you're talking about. But I, I want to start with this idea of, of having an enemy or having enemies itself. And, and I wonder if we could do that. Uh, you have a line um, where you say that Jesus lived a life of making enemies, which I think mm-hmm. is probably going to turn some heads. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a little different than Jesus, meek and mild, a little different than Jesus is my boyfriend. Um, certainly different than Jesus just wants us to vaguely love everybody. Um, so w- w- what do you mean by that, that Jesus lived a life of making enemies. Mm. You know, one of the, one of my uh, favorite uh, ways of sort of understanding the life of Jesus comes from Herbert McCabe, who I, I, I use a bit of his work in, uh, in this book, but, but um, one of, something that I've always appreciated about McCabe is um, uh, this image that he gives of Jesus coming into humanity as, um, as perfect love. Um, and when you put perfect love into a world that is ruled by greed and violence, this world has to stamp it out. Like it cannot, the world cannot stand to have like perfect love in it. Um, and so this is a McCabe calls this his, um, uh, no, uh, no theory uh, or absent atonement theory an atonement theory without a theory that, that Jesus gets swept up in the violence of the world, right? That this is, um, we are surrounded in this world of violence and brokenness. And, and so what it means to be truly human as Jesus is truly human in the world is to be wiped out by this violence. Like that's so that's what we're getting signed. That's what we're signing up to do, um, which is a, pretty bad, um, sales pitch for a religious community. Uh, Yeah. I, yeah, that's, I, I have no idea how this thing managed to keep going with that kind of, um, you know, that kind of offer. Um, but here we are, um, trying to live out this perfect love and, 
And I think what has often happened in the church is that we have, um, we have had a tendency to sort of tamp down um, the way that human beings interact with that violence in the world. And, and I actually think it comes from some really genuinely um, hopeful and good places that we don't really want to see people as enemies. We want to see the issues as enemies. We don't want to, um, you know, that people aren't really the, these things that they do. And, and I, I think that these are yeah, I, I really appreciate where people are coming from in that. Um, and at the end of the day, I think what you end up with is this um, sort of bifurcation of people from from the things that they do, right? Like like somehow you are this pure being and, and things are just always sort of acting on you. And I think we need to complicate that for ourselves or else it's going to be really hard for us to kind of figure out what it means to position ourselves in a world that is sort of that is is deeply wound up in these systems of brokenness through white supremacy and capitalism and um and we aren't going to be able to know what to do about those unless we sort of work with the fact that it means that some people are going to be enemies in in the midst of those systems yeah you, you say and you tell the story uh in the book of hearing another pastor sort of almost bragging that, you know, he had ICE agents and, you know, undocumented workers at the same uh, Eucharistic table and that this was somehow like a good thing. Um, and, and I have to confess, you know, there, there, I think probably if I had heard that right, right off the hop, I might've thought, yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, the table unites us, but you're, you're, you're right that there's a kind of violence done when we expect you know, when we <laughs> we expect this unity here, but not not out there. Yeah. Um, and I think I have the Bible on my side on this one. <laughs> I'm like, you know, this is what happened. This is First Corinthians, right? Yeah. Paul has this warning to people about what does it mean when you come to the table with these economic differences that persist in such a way uh, that you are unable to create a, a political life where you are for each other. Mm -hmm. Um, that there's a, that, that it becomes a sham, right. This ritual that becomes sort of a, again, to use like those Marxist terms, a veil that's placed over people to sort of keep them from thinking about what's actually going on with their own oppression. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that just reiterates all of these, all of these things that Jesus came to just pull apart and invite us into this new imagination for what's possible. Um, yeah. So I, so I, you know, I, I, again, I, you know, I, I try to be really clear that this is not a, a prescriptive book. Um, that's, yeah. this is a book that's part of an ongoing conversation and um, yeah, but I, but I'm troubled when I hear the sort of idea that somehow our differences are erased, especially documented and undocumented at the table. If that doesn't actually lead you to some sort of political solidarity on the other side. Yeah. I won't be able to read the books. I'm not going to give away everything. But at one point, you're talking about two people who who did come together from opposite sides of the spectrum, but it really cost one person, mm. uh, yeah. and that was the right choice. But uh, I, I mean, it is a. It, I guess there's there's a sense that you know, 
making one person no longer your enemy actually makes enemies of other people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm in our morning prayer that our, our church meets for morning prayer every morning and, um, on zoom. And, uh, you know, we read that, um, image of the body, right. The, the, that Paul Pauline image. Um, and when one part, part suffers, all the parts suffer with that, with it. Um, and I, I think that's another way to say when one part has an enemy, we are all, we are all enemies towards it. And if that's happening within your congregational life, you have to, you have to unpack that and talk about what that actually means for, um, the, 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 the real possibility that Jesus offered to us, like not just to, to show up and, and try to sort of shove religion in along with the rest of the other stuff you're doing in your life. And how can I sort of like, can like cram this in here, but it's actually this like dumping everything out and saying like, okay, let's see, let's see what's here and what do we have to do, um, to, to, to follow this, this God person <laughs> fully love, love embodied in our world, um, uh, towards this like new so- potential social reality. Yeah. So good. Um, so uh, another thing you talk about in the book quite a lot is, uh, our, well, and I mean, this is part of imagining a new social possibility is really aligning ourselves with, uh, with folks who are on the margins. And um, again, I, I only know you uh, from your social media, um, really, but uh, you know, it seems to me that recently you've become kind of more vocal about your support of marginalized people, um, particularly the LGBTQ community. Um, and I know that you talk, you talk in the book that that's been a bit of a journey for you uh, personally. Um, and, and so I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and, and why you think it's important to be not just generally supportive, but kind of vocally and actively supportive um, of people, because I think I think a lot of times in church we 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 assume that because we're church people, you know, obviously everyone should know that we <laughs> feel this way about something or other. But there is something uh, important about actually vocalizing it, um, and I'd be interested to know how that conversation is playing out in your community. I mean, I know denominationally it's a challenge. I, I suspect contextually it's a challenge. Uh, so yeah. It, yeah. Yes. I talk in the book about how I grew up in a church that was not affirming of LGBTQ people. And, um, and even though sometimes I, I know people hear the Episcopal church and they think of a very progressive denomination I was actually on the very conservative end of the Episcopal church that eventually left to form its own denomination, specifically in response to the ordination of Gene Robinson, uh, who was a openly gay, um, man who became a bishop in the Episcopal church. So I had these messages coming towards me all the time about the danger of LGBTQ people, um, how this was a part of like a larger liberal project to sort of move people away from faith or demythologize the Bible. And, and so, so many messages of fear and anxiety sort of, and it, and it took a long time to unpack those. And those were, um, and it also meant eventually leaving leaving the, my church. Um, you know, when we talk about the costliness of these decisions that we make, uh, you know, I I left those relationships. I left the, that church. I joined the Mennonite Church, which, you know, it's, it's not like uh, all all flowers and roses and uh, like LGBTQ world over in the Mennonite Church either. Um, 
but I, but um, definitely some, some, I can, that's a longer discussion about that, but um, yeah, but, but over time it did take a lot of unpacking to really understand um, that I was only given, only given one way of reading the Bible. And what does it mean when you start from a position of fear around LGBTQ people as, as the place that is sort of the ground of this and that you never actually hear from LGBTQ people about their lives and their experience and how they're reading the Bible. Um, so there was years of that process and, um, eventually, you know, um, came to a position of being, being affirming. Um, and then years later was called to the church that I'm at now. Um, and I think that's, that sort of sets the stage for why, um, I have found that it's, it's important to be very clear and open about, um, for churches to be very clear and open about where we, um, are in terms of our inclusion of LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of that was recognizing and coming to hear the stories of people who had been in churches where that wasn't clear, only to find out later that maybe they didn't even know really what they meant when they said that they were welcoming of all people, or maybe they were openly hostile to LGBTQ people. Um, and I mean, I, we've heard stories of people who I like were, I, this damaged their relationship with God. This made it impossible for them to read the Bible without openly weeping. They were scared every time they went into a church because they didn't know what to expect. And so from these experiences, we just said, it is, we have a, 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 conviction of the gospel to be clear that we, uh, about exactly what we mean, um, because we're not looking to re-traumatize people who have already been rejected by the church. Um, and so often Raleigh Mennonite is a place for, you know, like a church of last resort. Like this is the last place, you know, people are going to come before they just say, I just can't do this anymore. Um, and that has been, that has been such a holy honor to hold that um, space with people and to be trusted with that, that I think that has really led us as a congregation to say, we need to be, we need to be very, uh, we need to be advocates. We need to be in solidarity and we need to do this in a way that even if it's costly for us, and um, with our denominational relationships, we had to leave our conference um, and join a different conference and, um, and all of that is worth um, the the preciousness of these people who have trusted us with um, to be the place to to hold this spiritual trauma that they've experienced. Wow, that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Um, I, I, I you said something a second ago that's got me wondering, um, and often I hear it actually in more progressive churches. Uh, that, that sort of everybody's welcome. And I, like, it's always been the thing that kind of bothers me because I think it's not, it's, it's almost never true. <laughs> uh, not, not really. Um, it's not that we don't want people to come, but we certainly aren't going to make certain people feel comfortable just because they're there. Um, how do you, how do you navigate that in your congregation? 
do you navigate it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I've had I had a, a a conversation with a with a pastor from our community who who wanted to have coffee with me a couple of years ago, and he said, just so you know, Republicans would feel uncomfortable in your congregation. They you know they would not they would not feel welcome in your in your congregation. And I was like, oh. Um, what, why? Well, you know, you, you had, you have, um, you had a vigil for children in, in migrant, uh, detention centers at the border. Um, and I was like, I, I never think like, oh, is this, <laughs> is this a good space? Gonna think. <laughs> yeah. What are Republicans going to think? Like it, the, um, that has not been something that informs my, um, which I think is is actually it turns out maybe unusual. Um, this idea that I don't really see it as my job to create a wide tent, like this big tent where everybody can sort of be together. Um, mm-hmm. And I, my conviction about that is because that is a because that that lacks a power analysis. Um, always the people who bear the burden of centrism, of tolerance, are the people who are on the side of not having power over the, over the situation that they're in, right? Like, yeah. so as soon as you go into this saying, oh, again, you know, undocumented people and, and ICE agents, like they, they can worship together. Well, that's, that's not, that's not the same. You're not bringing the same amount of power to that situation, right? You have people who are being cheated out of wages, who are being threatened by landlords that steal their money because they're going to turn them in. Like, I think it just, it lacks this ability to understand who actually bears that burden. Um, and so I re- I really do think that we're at a point where churches need to decide, have to decide are we going to be the places that are uh, safe and nurturing and um, are actively on the side of people who have been pushed to the to marginalized in every aspect, economic, religious, political, judicial power in our context? Or are we going to be a place where we hope eventually people come to a sort of centrist position together um, because you can't be both. You yeah. just can't be both. It's a good word. I hope it's a good challenge for uh, lots of churches. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like you might catch some static for this book, uh, which I, I, I think um, I'm, I'm guessing you're okay with uh, you, you, you at least more or less. And, I, I, but I, I'm wondering, um, you don't seem like an antagonistic person, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so I'm wondering kind of, first of all, just for my own curiosity, if you're sort of a naturally um, someone who's kind of comfortable or at least compelled to push against the way things are, uh, do you, is that rebellious streak uh, come naturally to you? And, and I guess for someone, so I am I am utterly conflict averse. Uh, <laughs> Enneagram nine, pretty hard. Um, and, and so, you know, my default is always towards you know reconciliation and, and you know being together, which which as I think you make really clear in your book actually doesn't happen uh, when without some conflict. 
Um, and so I'm wondering if you have any kind of tips for those of us who uh, would shy away from <laughs> having enemies well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, um, I, I think the way that I would just say this is that I am not um, conflict averse, but I also don't go looking for conflict. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, um, yeah, I, I don't, um, I don't feel good in, in the midst of conflict. It's not something I really relish, but I think one of the important lessons of pastoral ministry for me is that actually moving people towards conflict in a healthy way um, can be a, a, if you do it well, um, it can actually be a really healthy experience for congregations um, and can move people into, um, into new places of re uh, relationally, as a community, as, um, as people of faith, um, to be able to walk into conflict rather than, than, than shying away. Because it's not like these conflicts just disappear, right? We just, we just find ways that we just have to find ways to sort of um, spackle over them and hope that eventually nothing happens. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so so that's 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 one of my my cues that I take from myself. Um, the other thing I can I I would offer is that um, co congregations in particular can only handle so much conflict, right? If you are just going from conflict to conflict to conflict, it it just wears people out. It's exhausting, um, and so we do need. Um, we do, I think we need to be careful in pastoral ministry that we're not, um, yeah, let's charge into this fight every, every single time. Um, because people, all, we need rest, you know, we need, we need, we need to cultivate ways and to be revived by community and be cared for by community. And I think that sometimes that impulse to sort of always be charging into the fight is the sort of lingering, um, you know, we got it, we got to work, right. We got it. Like we got a, um, Protestant work ethic, right? Like we really got to earn our space here. And I, and I want people to resist that, um, that, that rest, that, um, having spaces to, to be recharged and revived, um, that those are just as important. Um, and so just always being aware that that's, yeah, that, 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 um, where where's that sense of fight coming from you know where is it actually coming from yeah that's good i i uh i try to convince myself and my congregation as regularly as i can that when jesus calls us to something even if it's hard it's going to be good or at least mm. it's towards life uh and and not the other and i, I think yeah constantly being in a state of friction <laughs> can't can't be uh can't be life-giving for very, very long. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wanted to just sort of finish by asking how, how it is for your community these days um, in this weird time. Uh, COVID, I mean, it's politically, it's weird for you. <laughs> uh, the, then uh, uh, maybe weird is not the right word. Um, uh, yeah, so how, how's your church doing? Yeah, thanks for asking. We're, you know, we're doing okay. And um, I, I've been so impressed by 
um, people's creativity in their caring for one another during this time. Um, I was just over at one of our church members porches doing a front yard social distance kind of check-in. She's one of the oldest members of our church. And she was saying, oh, well, yeah, well, did I tell you last week, uh, Todd came by and, and he actually installed some new shelves. He noticed that last time he was here that I didn't have any shelving units. So, and then, oh, and then the week before that, uh, Anne came over and um, I'd asked, I told her that my, my table was too low and she just, you know, put some legs on it. And, and it was like this casket, like I had no idea, <laughs> like, like six people had been over to drop things off for Judy and check in on her and have coffee. And, and all of this sort of just is the space that's cultivated when, you know, when our, when it mat when we matter to one another, when it, when it really is on the line, um, and so I've just been just incredibly grateful for our community, um, especially because I'm exhausted and I'm virtually schooling three kids and you know, figuring it and all of these things that, um, yeah, that they have found um, ways to support me and one another and just really, really beautiful ways this season. That's great. Wow. Praise God. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad to hear it. I, I... I'm sure everything is not perfect, but uh, it seems like your community is a pretty important witness uh, in the world. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, your your writing has been a real gift to me, and I, I think it's uh, it's a gift to the church. So uh, keep doing it. <laughs> um, and uh, I want to thank you for your time today, and uh, you've been generous with it and with your story. And um, I hope we get to meet in person someday. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we heard the Canadian border's not opening up till 2022, which is pretty rough. So yikes, I'm uh, sorry about that. Yeah, it's a weird time. It's a weird time. Yeah. I'm going on sabbatical in a couple months and oh, okay. not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, so. yep. oh. uh, that's a lot. Anyhow, uh, this has been great. Uh, and I hope we get to chat again. All right, thanks, Aaron. Hey, take care. Hey, thanks for hanging out today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Melissa as much as I did. I'm certainly feeling convicted in the best kinds of ways. Here's a couple things I'm thinking about. I like the reminder that the church is meant to foster priestliness in all its members, not just a few set-apart folks. And that's related to the second thing I'm thinking about, which is that who we are is, at least complicatedly, largely what we do. <laughs> we're made in God's image and we're meant to reflect that image. Of course, we depend upon God's forgiveness and transforming grace, which is limitlessly available to us. But we don't cheapen that grace by assuming that it doesn't demand something of us in our everyday lives. Who we are at the table of Jesus is meant to be who we are at every table. Next, the world can't stand perfect love. Chase after it. Bear witness to it anyways. And don't make people assume your love. Name it. Proclaim it. Even if it's costly, it will be worth it. And finally, good conflict is healthy. Shying away from things that matter is rarely and maybe never loving. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to the Foxes and Fowl team, University Hill Congregation, the Pacific Mountain Region of the United Church of Canada for making all this happen. 
Thanks to Davis Miller for the tunes. Check them out wherever you get your music. Until next time, grace and peace.